the church is to be the conscience of the nation. So we're, we're to speak, just like your conscience bothers you, the church should bother those who are in top elected and appointed positions. Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP, Arlington 96.7 FM, and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. Tonight's interview is the second half of last week's chat with Rob Schenk, a former radical anti-abortion activist who now works to liberate the evangelical community from the grips of extreme politics and urges Washington conservatives to move beyond the tribalism and the politics of hate, fear, and violence. We join our hour-long discussion at the midway point. So, Rob, what you just said about um, you know putting Christ back at the center, how do you do that in a practical way? Especially when there's, you know, my last week's guest, I, uh, the question I led off with is, how do we be a light, each of us, in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of you know, a large segment of the body of Christ being kind of off on the political, overly far on the political side. What do we do as individuals practically to make sure we do that? Well, first, you know, let's refresh ourselves on Jesus. I think a lot of Christian folks, and I won't, you know, I won't lay it all at the feet of evangelicals, although it's best I do because I am one. Uh, but, you know, I think this applies to Christians of every brand, and that is to go back and read the words of Jesus. Maybe you have them in red in your Bible, and that makes it easier. Uh, but if we don't, uh, there are even, uh, you know, uh, edited versions, if you will, of the New Testament that only include uh the words of Christ himself. And I think we, we would do well to go back. Uh, it's easy to forget Jesus. It was even for his own disciples who had spent, you know, the better part of three years with him and in some pretty harrowing circumstances. But after he was gone, a few of them had forgotten him within hours. And that's certainly true for any Christian. We, we forget. We forget what Jesus said, what he did, I think it's time to go back to the four Gospels, maybe leave Paul alone for a little while. Uh, John, uh, you know, Revelation has plenty of Christ in it, but I would say a future Christ, not the Christ necessarily of this instant moment in time. And then we can ask ourselves a lot of questions. For example, I hear a lot of my fellow evangelicals championing uh, President Trump's call for law and order. But let's take a look at Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. Law and order required that she be stoned to death. It was a capital offense. It was the law. It had been the law for a long time. Uh, there was a very methodical way to apply the law. And the law and order called for that woman to be executed. But Jesus turned that 
on the executioners, the would-be executioners. And when they collapsed under that ethical test, he turned to the uh, condemned and said, woman, I don't condemn you, but the law called for her to be condemned. He did this again with his disciples when he said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I say to you, but I say to you. And then he goes on to tell us that we're to love our enemies, not to exact retribution from them. So these things recalibrate us. And look, you know, I'm not trying to be holier than thou here. I backslide every other hour of the day, as we all do. It's our human nature. We are sinners. We have a proclivity uh, to disobey uh, God's will. And that's why we need to constantly remind ourselves it's a discipline. It's why we call a follower of Jesus a disciple, because it requires discipline to stay in the model and pattern and and sentiment uh, of Christ. So maybe call that revival, reformation, renewal, but it's required of us and, and it has to happen routinely. I used to decry people going back to the altar on us, you know, the old Sunday night church of, you know, yesteryear. People would go back on a Sunday night and weep about their sins and, oh, come on, you know, how many times are you going to do that? Well, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to be doing that like hourly. But anyway, that's just my rambling thoughts on that. So it seems when I try to approach study in the Word, I try to make things simple, simple in a way that resonates with me and something that, that's, that I can remember more easily. I mean, you're, you're talking about the just the unglamorous work of getting in the Bible and reading it, and a lot, a lot of people struggle with this. And I, I remember reading uh, Rick Warren's book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. He had a thousand plus scriptural references. I looked them all up, wow. and I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite get my mind around, you know, his five. I'll call them pillars or five principles. And so I stepped back and I just said to myself, well, "Is there a greatest commandment?" <laughs> and right away, it's like, oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is based on these. Okay. And then I thought, okay, was there something we're supposed to seek above all else? Oh, seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he'll give you everything you need. And I came up with four of these, basically. And, and they just resonate with me. But the one that really resonates with me now is the greatest commandment. And, and for me, it's really, really simple. And maybe we're just not having enough just teaching of this. And also, good leadership is repeating the same thing over and over and over again. And the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And someone said, well, who's my neighbor to Jesus? And you describe the story of a despised Samaritan. And so despised people are our neighbors who we're supposed to be loving. And then separately, Luke 6.27, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. I learned that experience loving my wife. When she left me, I had caused so much damage that she really took me to town and court in a number of places. And I chose to love her. And a lot, the drumbeat of ungrace was unbelievable around me. Everyone's like, oh, you're stupid. And she's mm-hmm. abusing you. And, and I said, you know, I did all that mean stuff. 
and I and I and I've seen glimpses of the power of grace. So I'm I'm just going to go with this. And what happened over those ten years was remarkable. Do you think? I mean, I'm sort of reducing it to one. For me, what resonates with me a simple thing of love your enemy. Who's your enemy? Those who you despise, and we're supposed to love our enemies. Is there something with you that that resonates with you that you share with others to kind of help them to kind of quickly come up with the, the ethos by which to walk by? Well, I always go to the two great commandments because the the question was so relevant and so apropos to our own time and our own experience. What is the greatest of all the commandments? All the commandments, lots of commandments in scripture. You can count them as 613. If you want to boil them down to the 10, you got 10. Uh, but Jesus answers with those simple two. And, and, and it's the simplicity of it. it it's, how, it's how common sensical <laughs> uh, it is. It, he just answers, they are two. He's asked for one, and he says, they are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. When you read that, both in the Greek and the likely Aramaic that Jesus spoke it in, it, you, you can really read it as, and the second is the equivalent to it, of the same ranking. Literally, it's what it means, of the same rank. It's, yeah, but the, the NLT says it's equally important. There it is, equally. That's terribly important. Homois in, in, in the Greek uh, manuscript, it's the same as love your neighbor as yourself. And you so beautifully. I wish, I wish, uh, I, I had captured that on my end. What you said about that. Here, who is the neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Samaritan, who is number one not a follower of biblical religion. So easily could have been a Muslim. Islam didn't exist at that time. It wouldn't uh, for many centuries. But he could have been. A, a Samaritan would have been very similar to a Muslim. So he could have, he, today, Jesus likely would have said, uh, would have described the good Muslim who took care of this fallen man, while the most religious, the, the person everyone would think was the best Christian, if you will, passed by with indifference, could not have cared less about the man uh, who had fallen uh, to, uh, to highway robbers. But the good Muslim or the Samaritan that everyone no doubt wrinkled their noses, raised their eyebrows, scowled, looked around and said, what? The H is he talking about? A Samaritan, a Muslim, a, a you know, a pagan or a heathen would be more accurate. Uh, and yet, this is the hero of the story: the neighbor. Love your 
neighbor as yourself. We don't have to go any further than that because Jesus said, upon this hang all the law and the prophets. Everything you have in scripture, everything you have in your faith, everything you've been taught about what it means to serve God hangs on these two. In other words, if you fail at either of these, you're wasting your time on everything else. So get these two right. And that's, for me, that's the framework. The two great commandments, you, you can't best them. Jesus said so. Can't get any better than this. Yeah, it's funny. He, he used stories all the time. There was storytelling to make his point. And, and, and the purpose of this radio program is to provide examples of people and organizations. We call it living by grace, providing an example of grace. I mean, Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses out on God's grace. We're trying to provide examples and that, that would hopefully lead to a spark in, in how people change. Um, do you think, are you seeing that? I mean, I've had this notion in my mind for years of it'd be wonderful to have a primetime TV program once a week, like 48 hours used to be or something like that, a one-hour program that, that features stories of grace. Um, and, and I told you, we were on a, we're not on a Christian radio station, our program. We're on a, what you could call a secular station. It's a wonderful group of people. Most of them are blue-leaning, and, and I love them. And we're not an echo chamber, you know, just Christians all the time for Christians. Uh, we, we had a Muslim gentleman come on, a Sufi Muslim banker, whose 20-year-old son was killed by a 14-year-old gangbanger. Mm. And the 14-year-old son, his name is Tony Hicks, first 14-year-old convicted as an adult of murder in California. His grandfather, Southern Baptist, Plez Felix, as his name, was in his prayer closet. And Azim Kamisa, the Muslim, was praying. And they came together in the attorney's offices. And, and you know, Plez said, I'm so sorry what my grandson did. What can I do to help your family? And Azim said, there's victims at both ends of the gun. Mm. Let's go out and preach a message of nonviolence. And for 25 years, they've been traveling the world doing that. Wow. What an incredible example. And, and. Azim went to the governor and said, let's knock this life sentence out. Let's please let Tony free at 25 years. And he started a nonprofit in honor of his son, and he hired Tony to work for the nonprofit. This is, you know, there's this thing called common grace. Everyone has the ability. We're all made in God's image to show these amazing things. And we have so many stories like this, and I'm personally trying to figure out how to get a broader platform for people to hear this because it's so needed. We need a counterbalance to the, just the mountain and the growing mountain of ungrace. And, I, and I, that's why I appreciate what you're doing and, and sort of the humility of coming out and saying over and over on national platforms, man, I was wrong. I was way off. Well, I'll <laughs> and tell I you, every, my way back. every great mission requires a good angel. And there must be an angel out there. If, you know, I just think if somebody just heard you recite that, and it gave them the same goosebumps it gave me. And they have a capacity to help you launch that. I hope they will find you very soon. That angel who has the resources, financial and otherwise, to say, you know what, we need to do that. Let's get that done. You've had those angels in your life before. I've, I have them in mine. And that's the kind of partnership that helps repair the world. So I'm, I'm going to pray that that angel 
comes out of the closet somewhere and says, let's do this. Let's make this happen. Let's tell those stories. Because those are the things that people connect with. One of the stories I like to tell is that for years I was an itinerant preacher. So I was in a different pulpit virtually every Sunday, 40 Sundays out of a year, somewhere in the United States or in the world. And usually I'd make it back to the same pulpit or you know podium in about a two, three-year cycle. But on one occasion, it was four months. I happened to be at the same church four months after my last visit. And I said to the congregation, which was quite large, uh, several hundred people, I said, how many of you remember the Bible verse that we looked at when I was here four months ago? Nobody. I said, how many remember the title of the sermon, uh, the teaching as we called it in that church, the teaching? Nobody. How many remember the story of the prostitute in Amsterdam, Holland? Every hand went up. Hmm. They remembered the story of the prostitute in Amsterdam, but and then it came back to them. Oh yeah, that's right. And then they're shouting out titles and topic and and Bible verses that we looked at because it connected with the story. I think stories are extremely important, and I pray and hope that'll be the next time I visit you is when you're when you're doing your story campaign. So let, let me do this now. Let me ask you just a hard question right up front. And, and I know there's fear people using this sort of terminology, you know, against people in power. But I look at our president, um, you know, I, I actually posted a blog post of do we stand up to our leaders when, when they stumble? And I went through the Old Testament and there were two prophets that stood up against Ahab. There was, you know, Nathan in the court of David. Um, I could go on and on. Daniel stood up to some pretty serious people that could have caused him a great deal of harm, and he just spoke truth to them. Uh, John the Baptist calling down Herod, Paul calling down Peter, and then uh, most famously Jesus was really, you know, many times when he used bad terms, he was calling people names, you know, 24 out of 28 times, I think I counted. It was it was the religious leaders he was mm -hmm. pounding on. Mm -hmm. So when we see behavior that is insanely dishonest, corrupt, hateful, hate-spewing, inept, and it's causing loss of life and issues. What is a what is a believer to do these days? Because I think the big thing we struggle with, I love in John, it says, you know, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us full of grace and truth. We really have a hard time as human beings walking full of grace and truth. Mm. We're, we're either real truth people and we're struggling with grace because of that, or we're, or we're more, you know, kumbaya, very grace, but not standing up for truth. It's a struggle. How do we how do we stand for truth, but be so graceful like Jesus was? He was irresistible to people. Is, is there any, any thoughts of how we can do that in this current environment? Yeah, well, it's certainly an enormous challenge. And maybe it's because we tend to think of one or the other. Either I'm going to be speaking the truth and it will be rude and disrespectful. I get this quite a bit. I, I try to treat every president, and I've worked closely with more than one, uh, with great deference. Uh, I think that's both scriptural and just common courtesy, and I think it, it's probably necessary to a good, uh, balanced society. So, I've always been very respectful. Uh, I once confronted 
Bill Clinton uh, when he was president uh, inside the Washington National Cathedral. I read about uh, that. Yeah, year, it was years ago, you know, getting now into time before, time, you know, the time before time. But I called him Mr. President and I, and I paid great deference and respect to him in that moment, even though I called him out for uh, his uh, veto of the partial birth abortion ban. And I was detained by the Secret Service. And, uh, but I, I treated him with respect. And even the Secret Service agents that arrested me noted that. They said, you know, Reverend, you, you were very courteous. Uh, that, that was impressive. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, you know, you're under arrest. You still, yeah, you're still uh, confronted. And, and I treated them with great respect, uh, as, as I had in ev on every occasion that I was arrested. And I was arrested numerous times. Uh, always treated judges with great respect. Uh, on Capitol Hill, even when I was with, uh, you know, a ferocious opponent, uh, I would always call them by their proper titles and uh, offer all the courtesies. I think we can do that. Um, my dad, uh, who was Jewish all his life, uh, never, you know, uh, was not a Christian man, and he would he taught me that. And he said, you know, never raise your voice when you can strengthen your argument. I think that was original with Samuel Johnson, uh, but he had modified li a little bit. And, and that's part of it. We make our case and we appeal, the scripture says, to authority. We appeal. It's a proper comportment. And, and we should do that now out of love and respect and concern because no one is served well by a lapdog or a sycophant, or a toady, you know, someone who just tells the boss whatever he wants to hear is no friend to the boss. You're not going to assist the person in authority by simply uh, echoing back what that person wants to hear. You offer them constructive, respectful, uh, substantive, critique when necessary, advice, whatever you want to call it. And that's what the church should be doing now. My greatest earthly hero is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I now direct the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, D.C. I founded it because of my great admiration for this very courageous, young, brave, brilliant uh, German pastor who was one of the first religious voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler and the rise of Nazism in Germany. He would eventually pay for that with his life when he was executed at age 39. But he was certainly one of the most brilliant minds of the last century and a half. And uh, Bonhoeffer was always respectful uh, to Adolf Hitler. And he, like Karl Barth, one of his mentors, the great German uh, Swiss theologian who said, the church is to be the conscience of the nation. So we're, we're to speak, just like your conscience bothers you, the church should bother those who are in top elected and appointed positions. So for the president or 
leaders of Congress, justices of the Supreme Court, the voice of the church should bother them. There's a great uh, old black spiritual, uh, he troubled me. He troubled me down in my soul. What's the rest of it? Uh, that was beautiful. It's just beautiful. <laughs> and it's the voice that troubles me. And, and we should trouble the consciences of our elected and appointed officials. It's our job. This is a great segue. Look, first of all, I'm squeezing a second interview out of this. We got another probably four minutes. I want to run a concept by you that I ran <clears throat> across a friend of mine's wife. She's written a couple of books and she's writing a third on conflict. And she's been researching for three years, got back from Bogota when I spoke with her. She was meeting with the rebels and the government. And she said, well, you said something to me at a Christmas caroling party that I, you know, I really love and I can't get it out of my mind. And I'm like, well, what did I say? And she said, you mentioned the notion of a grace lobbyist. Mm. She said, I've heard so mm. many things, mm. she said. And she talked about the, the group called Common Good, who published a study on the exhausted majority. They said there's seven types of political people in the U.S. There's three extremist groups, two on the left, one on the right. But that 67% of Americans are, are in the middle and they're exhausted. They've had it with all of this. Mm. And she says, I have to believe that millions of people would, would be so happy if they knew someone was on Capitol Hill or some group moving about and promoting grace instead of promoting some self-interest. And she sent me uh, some statistics on lobbying. There are 80,000 lobbyists <laughs> in D.C. lobbying our politicians, 80,000. And I, I wouldn't even know where to begin something like this. I don't even know if I'm the guy for that, but it's just something that's been on my mind for a while. You know, in, in a couple minutes, what is your reaction to that? Is that something that, what, what, how did it strike you when I first said it? Well, I spent uh, 27 years walking those halls uh, of Congress uh, and in and out of the White House and the Supreme Court. I think I met only 70,000 of those lobbyists. I don't know where the other 10,000 were, but I certainly <laughs> met great. a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that's a beautiful idea a wonderful idea. It would, it would be the most difficult task to take on because both sides seek to seduce that kind of presence. Come over, you know, it's the siren sound. Come over here. You want to be with us. You know, you look more like a Republican. You look more like a Democrat. You'd be more at home with us than you are with them. And then there's incentives and rewards and access that's offered. I experienced a lot of that myself. I wish I could tell you I succeeded in resisting the temptation. I did not. In fact, I succumbed to it. And, and I lost my moral authority in that transaction. So it would be one of the most difficult and exacting tasks but it would be worth the struggle uh, and it would be of enormous benefit to others. And there is a way to do it. There, there's more than one way to do it. So don't rule it out, Ed. Do pray about it. 
what we should do if you you'd commit to praying as well and we can pray together and, and talk about this and see if if there's some practical way to do this because this is you know i call myself a grace evangelist i can't stop talking about what i call the realness the superpower the practicality and the beauty of god's grace i was a christian for 20 some years and you and i know what it's like to be a believer but go off the road yes <laughs> that happens to many of us so i get it now it's authentic what you and i have been through makes us gives us some some validity it gives us a stamp of of approval in a sense and I'd love to take this message to other people and, and try to go one to many and then each of those many to many. So I, time is out. We've done another half an hour, two half hour programs. I really appreciate your time that you've given me here. Um, if people want to find out about Rob Shank, you can go to his website at revrobshank.com, R-E-V-R-O-B-S-C-H-E-N-C-K.com. This is Ed and Rob signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.